Please take your Bibles this morning. Join me in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to continue our series through the book of Genesis. And I'm not going to recap all the applications I made last week. You can go back and listen to it if you missed it. And you should. Instead, I just want to remind you where we're at contextually in Abram's journey. Remember that at the age of 75, Abram leaves Haran with his wife and Lot in tow. And they entered into the land of Canaan by the leading of God. As he moves southward through the land, he stops in a place called Shechem. And while there, the Lord appeared unto Abram and he promised to give his seed the land where he stood. And there Abram built an altar unto the Lord. After a time in Shechem, he removes from the plain and he heads up into the mountains on the east of Bethel, and there he built another altar to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's where we left off. I want to pick this account back up in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 20. Genesis chapter 12, look with me please in verse 9. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Amen. Well, in verse 9, we see Abram is on the move again. He continues southward through the land of Canaan. Remember that according to Hebrews 11, he is sojourning as a pilgrim and a stranger on the earth. We have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger while traveling through this world of woe. But there's no sickness, toil, or danger in that bright land to which I go. Amen. And so in the meantime, where can the child of God find rest in this world? Well, we can only find rest for our souls in the Lord. We find rest in Him and standing in the way of His Word. Standing in His Word. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we find rest in Him, but we also find rest in the paths of His Word. Jeremiah 6.16 Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Hey, if you find yourself just a stranger and a pilgrim sojourning upon this world, know that we have a heavenly one to come. And in the meantime, you can go to the Lord and you can go to His Word and you can have rest in this world. And this world is a mess, amen? But we can have rest and we can have peace. Now, Abram, he's been obedient to God's call. God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram's been obedient to follow God's leading into a land of God's choosing. Are you catching all that? Let me say it again so we're all on the same page. Abram, he is obedient to God's call. He's following God's leading and he's going to the land of God's choosing. Now, I've already covered that there's partial obedience here in the fact that he is taking family with him. But that aside, Hebrews is clear that he was moving by faith. He's following God's call, his lead, and God's choosing. And as he's journeying southward through the land there's altars that are starting to dot the landscape from where Abram has parked it, and he's built an altar to call upon the name of the Lord. But notice again the opening statement in verse 10, and there was a famine in the land. We are told at the end of verse 10 how the famine was grievous in the land. In other words, this is a severe famine. You don't want to find yourself in this. That's how we think, right? Of course we want food. Amen. Lighten up, everybody. We're Baptists. We like food. Amen. Don't act like you don't. I see it. All right. You can take that however you want. So here he is. He's following God's uh, call. He's following God's lead. He's going to the land of God's choosing. And how's this for following God now? God, I'm following you. I'm trusting your leadership. I'm trusting where you're leading. And then now he lands right smack dab in the middle of a severe famine. Well, that's a nice how do you do, Lord. And so we come to a principle I've highlighted many times over the years. And I'll continue to emphasize it. And that is this. Being in the will of God does not always equal an absence of trouble in our life. And it's important we understand this because if you find yourself trying to discern the will of God based solely upon your ease, your happiness, and your prosperity, then you stand a good chance of avoiding God's will for your life. The fact is, there's going to be times that God's leading is going to take us into very difficult circumstances. But adversity doesn't always mean God is chastening us. Nor does it always mean we've missed the will of God. Just because things have gotten difficult, it doesn't mean you left the path of God's plan for your life. It wasn't always easy for Moses as he led a disgruntled nation through the wilderness. It wasn't always easy for Joshua to lead Israel through the wars of Canaan. 
It wasn't always easy for David when he was in hiding from King Saul. It wasn't always easy easy for God's prophets to proclaim God's message. Hebrews 11.36-38 And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, but they were in the will of God. Amen. Hey, John the Baptist was in the will of God when he was in prison and ultimately beheaded. The disciples were in the will of God when the storm came upon them in the boat. They were in the will of God when the council arrested them, imprisoned them, and beat them. Paul was in the will of God when he describes his sufferings. And the greatest example of all is our Lord. He was in the will of God as He suffered and died a violent, torturous death through being scourged and nailed to that cross. And we can never fathom the pain that Jesus must have went through when He who knew no sin became sin for us as the sin of the world was being laid upon Him. And yet, He was in the will of God. Because of that, we can have salvation and forgiveness of sins through His blood. Listen, I don't know what God has planned for your life, but it is going to involve enduring some suffering along the way. There's going to be some hardships now and then. It's not if, but it's when. Welcome to Liberty Baptist. Amen. We're just trying to encourage you this morning. And, and while we don't enjoy it, I don't enjoy suffering and hardships. Uh, and let's just be honest, we don't enjoy it, but we can learn to embrace it once we understand it's God's way of conforming us into the image of His dear Son. And you'll just have to learn to trust God. I also want you to take note of another principle I've mentioned a few times in the, in the recent weeks. Notice how God didn't bother to tell Abram He was going to lead him right into the middle of a famine-stricken land. He didn't say, What's up, Abram? Pack up your stuff. Let's go to a famine. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Lord, I am on board. I love starving. So he didn't tell Abram he was leading him into this famine. But you know what? God knows how much we need to know. And God knows how much we can handle. If Abram knew beforehand that God was leading him into a land of famine, he may have been inclined to stay where he was at and never leave Ur to begin with. Or at least try to reason with God. You know, if we wait till the famine's over, over, this will go a lot better. That's how our minds think. Our flesh wants to wait for the easy way, wants to take the easy path. And the same is, is said of us. If, if we knew of the hardships we would endure when we first set out on our journey with God, then we might not want to start it. And that's because when we first set out with God, listen to me, when we first set out with God, we don't always understand how God works. And we're not ready to handle that knowledge. 
If we saw all that lay in our path ahead of time, we wouldn't always grasp how God is going to take that situation and work all things together for our good and His glory. And then as we're going through a difficult season, we have to be careful how we view God's leading in that moment. Because in that moment of time, we can be guilty of making wrong assumptions. I want to try to explain this a little bit. God has you at your job for a purpose. God has you in your family for a purpose. God has you teaching that class here for a purpose. And God has you in that ministry for a purpose. But when difficult times arrive, uh, when difficult times arrive, you're going to be tempted to think, had I known this was going to happen, I would have never started it to begin with. Amen. Because those hard times are coming. Had I known this was going to happen on the job, I wouldn't have taken the job. Had I known my marriage was going to take this turn, I would not have married her or him if you're her. What? Exactly. <laughs> Had I known this class or ministry would be so difficult, I wouldn't have started it. Where did we get the idea that secular employment was going to be easy? Where did we get the idea that marriage was going to be easy? Now, I can report to you it can become easy if you'll follow God's plan. The presence of a difficulty doesn't mean it isn't God's will. So where do we get the idea that ministry is supposed to be easy? By the way, the same can be said for where you attend church. If you have the mindset you should never experience any difficulties and that church is supposed to be great all the time, then you'll leave in search of another church situation to please your flesh. But really, you may be leaving the will of God. Before you assume a situation is no longer God's will, and before you make a move, ask yourself this. Was it God's will back then? And then, it, why is it no longer God's will now? Are you following my logic? If it was God's will then, what changed to make it not God's will now? Well, it got difficult. No, 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 that's what I'm trying to tell you. That doesn't mean it's not God's will. You think it's easy being a pastor? <laughs> if God led you to it, why is He leading you away from it? And then with your answer, see if it lines up with the Word of God. And if it does, press on. But if it doesn't, stay put. Now, we see in the middle of verse 10 that because of the grievous famine in the land, Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. There's debate on whether Abram was right or wrong in his decision to go to, to Egypt. Was it just common sense to leave a region experiencing a famine to go where there is food? Or is he exhibiting a lack of faith in God? Is he moving by faith or is he moving by sight? Well, we aren't, giving, we, we aren't given anything dogmatically to be able to say one way or the other. So I'll leave that for you to ponder. But I will, I will point out this. We do not find God directing. We don't know if He did or didn't. We don't see it. 
We don't find God directing, and we don't find Abram praying like we had before this point. And I think that's important. Now, one good thing here is that it says he's going there to sojourn and not to dwell. There is a difference. And it's not like he's bailing on God altogether and he's leaving the land of promise, heading back up and around to Ur or even up to Haran. In fact, he's going in the opposite direction altogether. He's going southwestward down into Egypt. And so that's good. But one thing is for sure, as Abram approaches Egypt, his walk with God is off. Don't miss that. Notice verses 11 through 13 again. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. So on the way to Egypt, Abram starts doing some thinking. I can tell you it's never good when we start to lean into our own understanding. We get into trouble when we stop trusting God. Hey man! Abram, he gets to playing out in his mind how everything's going to unfold when he gets down to Egypt. And so he comes up with a scheme. And actually what he's doing is he's reminding Sarai of a plan that he devised before they ever left Ur. And you can find that in Genesis 20.13. Abraham's going to tell Abimelech, because he's going to do this again, but he'll say to him, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me. At every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. So, Abram now looks at Sarai, and he says, Behold now, I need you to listen to me, Sarah. I need you to see this my way. I need you to pay attention. This is important, what I have to say. And he starts off well. I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. And and husbands, it wouldn't hurt you to praise your wife every now and then. And so he says, girl, I know you're fine. And, And no doubt she replies back to Abram, oh, I heard that. Tell me something I don't know, Abram. He says, all right, I'll tell you something you don't know. We're going to a place that they're going to see you and they're going to know you're beautiful and they're going to want to kill me to have you. Abram knows the Egyptians, believe it or not, at that time, most of the world had a very high regard for the marriage bond. And Abram knows he's going into a land, the people have a high regard for the marriage bond, so they would rather be guilty of murder than adultery. That's his thinking. And so if they take Abram out and he's dead, then they can lawfully pursue Sarai, right? So Abram is now fearful for his life. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And in his fear, Abram tells Sarai in verse 13, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. 
Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Because technically, it's true. He's technically telling a truth. When we get to Genesis 20, back to that scene with Abimelech, Abram's going to tell him, and yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now before you freak out, that was legal back then. But don't be marrying your half-sister now, amen? That's a no-no. While Sarai was Abram's half-sister, this is only a half-truth in order that he might cover up the whole truth. He's telling a half-truth to cover up the other half of the truth. He's not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, And when truth is forsaken, you can start to justify what is wrong in your mind. Stating what is true here wasn't their problem. If he wanted to say he was or she was his sister, whatever. The problem was they're concealing their marriage, right? And in so doing, a half-truth has become a whole lie. And the slyest of lies, the craftiest of lies, are the ones that contain a certain amount of truth. Matthew Henry wrote this, What he said was, in a sense, true, but with a purpose to deceive. He so concealed a further truth as in effect to deny it and to expose thereby both his wife and the Egyptians to sin. So to protect himself, Abram wants his wife to join him in this lie. And this proves the truth of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And at a time when he should be willing to lay down his life for his wife, we see his selfishness on display Because of fear. Now, men are logical. Women are emotional. Don't get offended at that. That's just the way it is. All you women are getting emotional. I know, chill. (laughs) Abram gets Sarai to agree with his logic by playing on her emotions. It's a common tactic used by selfish men. He tells her, my soul shall live because of thee. See, Sarah, you'll be doing a good thing. It echoes the sentiment, if you love me, you'll do this. And you know what I'm talking about. In my opinion, it's, he's manipulating her emotions. He's only thinking of himself. Because what did he expect to happen to his wife? Just because he says, tell them that I'm your brother, she's still going to be taken whether they kill him or not. And so what is he thinking here? She's still going to be taken, and so this solely benefits Abram. Well, they exit the land of Canaan, they continue into Egypt, and at the end of verse 14, we see that the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair or that she was very beautiful. Hey, not bad for a 65-year-old. Amen? Does that help some of you ladies out? I mean, 65, she's still turning heads. Now, to be fair, in our lifespan, she'd be about 40. Amen? So maybe that doesn't give you much hope. But hey, 
Abram was right. They desire her. In verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh see her. These princes are probably what they call uh, courtiers. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember if I'm saying that right. Courtiers, something like that. Matthew Henry calls them pimps. And so they see Sarai, they behold her beauty, and these, these princes here, they exist for the purpose of fulfilling the king's lust. And Pharaoh has some desires, they know what they are, they can get in his good favor, and they can present this woman to him, and it would be a good thing for the courtiers, a bad thing, obviously, for Abram and Sarai. And so they, they tell the Pharaoh. And sure enough, she's taken. She's going to be placed in his harem. She's just going to be another one of his girls. Man, this just really gets me fired up. What is Abram thinking? Why doesn't he ever say anything when they take her? This is unbelievable to me. Why didn't he speak up? She's being taken for one purpose. But in the interest of self-preservation, Abram remains silent. And then in verse 16, his selfish scheme is rewarded by Pharaoh. Abram gives him animals and servants. And I mentioned earlier how the presence of adversity doesn't mean it isn't God's will. And here we can see how the presence of prosperity doesn't mean it is God's will. Well, without Abram stepping up, in verse 17, we find that God has to step in. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So God intervenes. But notice why He does. It's because of Sarah. He says, I'm going to intervene because of your wife. Abram failed to protect his wife, and so God protects her. And God really here, if we look at the bigger picture, He's protecting the seed line of the coming Messiah. And He plagues Pharaoh and his house. Now, we're not told how Pharaoh came to know the truth, but in verses 18 and 19, he knows, and he says to Abram, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now, you know it's bad when a pagan Pharaoh has to rebuke a follower of God. You know it's bad when the Pharaoh has more sense than Abram in this area of morality. What a shame when the world has to rebuke believers. But it happens. And sad to say, I've been on the receiving end of that early in my military career. Pretty bad when the world has to say, I didn't know this is how Christians would act. I didn't think Christians did that. Right? And isn't this interesting? The Pharaoh's reaction shows that if Abram would have simply told the truth from the beginning to the Pharaoh, he and his wife would have been fine. In the second half of verse 19, Pharaoh continues to reprove Abram by saying, Now therefore, behold thy wife. He doesn't say, Behold thy sister. Earlier, Abram told Sarai, Behold now, I need you to say that you're my sister. But now Pharaoh says, Behold thy wife. And I see quite a rebuke in this contrast in these two statements. Hey, Abram, stop being her brother. Be her wife. 
or <laughs> be your husband. Oh, man, we, you can't even say that today without getting it all wrong, amen? People be like, yeah, that's possible. No, it's not. No, it's not. And so he says, stop being her brother. Start being her husband. Well, the Pharaoh says at the end of verse 19, take her and go thy way. And in verse 20, he commanded his men to escort them out and sent them away. Abram never says a word. He knows he's guilty. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to justify his position. Now, just a quick observation here before I get to the the emphasis. Through all of this is a parallel that we see between this sojourn of Abram in Egypt and the sojourning of Jacob and the children of Israel in Egypt. It's almost as if this is a foreshadow of what was to come in the future for the Hebrew people. Abram and Jacob both end up in Egypt because of a famine. Abram is afraid he will be killed and Sarai will be spared. Later there would be the killing of the newborn Hebrew males and the sparing of the females. Both times were plagues. Uh, Both times there were plagues which led to deliverance. And both came out of Egypt with great possessions. So it's an interesting parallel. Now, what can we learn from all of this? Well, remember from earlier, there are times when God may lead us into difficult circumstances. And when He does, listen to me, please, that's not the time to leave the altar of prayer. We don't find Him praying. We don't find Him at an altar again. What's happening here? Difficult times have come, and he's gotten distracted, and he's no longer focused on God. And if you're not careful, that's going to happen to you. You're going to find yourself in trying times, and you're going to be tempted to forsake that which you once were standing upon, and you're going to leave the altar of prayer. We have no record of Abram seeking God for how to proceed. So what happened to him calling upon the name of the, of the Lord at the altar, like we saw in verse 8? Where is Abram's daily walk with the Lord? Why is he not at the altar praying for daily bread? Isn't that what the Lord said to do? He's in the land of famine. Why isn't he crying out to God for his provision? And if God was okay with him sojourning down into Egypt, why is he not praying, Lord, give me the strength to be honest. God, protect my wife. You know, some don't see God at work because they never ask Him to work. And as Abram fails to seek the Lord, we see him leaning unto his own understanding. And when we start down that path, we can make some pretty dumb decisions. We can even find ourselves justifying our sin. Now here's what I think we see in all of this. Is we're watching a man who's learning how to walk with God. This is new to him, right? He didn't come out of Ur with a King James Bible in his hand. (laughs) All right, be back tonight. Um, (laughs) He's learning to walk with God. (laughs) That came out wrong. I don't mean to say if you... All right, just stop. (laughs) Abram believed God's promises. Now, I want you to get this. He believed God's promises enough to leave Ur and then leave Haran. But he has a hard time trusting God in the ins and outs of daily life. He has a hard time. God, 
I really don't see how you're going to meet my need here. I need to take matters into my own hands. I, I trust some of this other stuff, some of this bigger picture stuff, but I don't see how you're going to take care of my daily needs. And then as Abram approaches Egypt, he's afraid he's going to be killed. But wait a minute. What happened to the promise that God was going to make him a great nation? What happened to the promise that he would be a blessing to all families of the earth? It's hard to do that when you're dead. Let me make sure I make that clear. It's hard to do that when you're dead with no promised seed. Isaac's not arrived yet. And so, where's his faith now? In his fear, Abram, who is praised for his faith in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, he's now having a lapse of faith. And thankfully, in Abram's lapse of faith, God still shows himself faithful. You see, God is trying to teach Abram, I'm your help. God wants Abram to see, I'm your deliverance. Your only help comes from the Lord, not from your own ingenuity. I had to go slow, should because it was going to come out all jumbled. And I believe this is a lesson God would have taught him in the land of Canaan through the famine instead of going through all the trouble he did down in Egypt. But God is so good, He intervenes, He overrides Abram's failure. But we can't always count on that to happen because there are times we will reap what we have sown. Now, let me bring this home. Like Abram, those of you who are learning to walk with God or those of you who have cared less to grow in your walk with God, most of you will say, I trust the bigger picture. I trust God with my eternity. But you may have a hard time and you may fail when it comes to trusting God in everyday life. Our Lord taught us, take no thought for your life. He said, don't worry about what you need to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. I've got all that covered. I clothe the grass with lilies. I feed the birds of the air. They don't have Walmart. I feed them anyway. And that is the same God who knows what we have need of. And so He said, therefore, seek ye first the kingdom of God. But there have been times that we've had lapse of faith. We've trusted in our own wisdom. We ended up coming up with a scheme. And we came up with a plan. And we told half-truths. And we brought others into our boneheaded decisions. And it's because we haven't learned to fully trust Him yet. And if I were to ask you if you trust God enough to save your soul, almost everyone in here would say, yes. But do you trust Him to meet your needs? Do your actions show that you trust God? Do you really trust Him? Do you worry? Then you don't really trust Him. Do you stress out? Then you don't really trust Him. Do you have fears? Then you're not really trusting Him. Come on now, somebody help me preach. Have you already left the altar of prayer only to find yourself leaning unto your own understanding? And that's why you're stressed. And that's why you're freaked out. And that's why you can't get any peace or any rest. You know what Philippians says, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7? Be careful for nothing. 
What does that mean? Don't worry about anything. Whoop! You don't have to have ulcers in this life. Ha <laughs> ha! Okay, well, that was good. Apparently, y'all got them and I offended you. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How is it that we can trust God to meet our eternal need, but we can't trust the same God to meet our needs of today? How is it we can trust God to keep us saved, but we can't trust God to keep us through the difficulties of everyday life? I know many would say they trust God, but I think we're so stinking spoiled here in America that we haven't been forced to trust in God like those in other countries. We can go get on a program. We can go take out a loan. We can do all these things. And we can scheme and we can come up with our own plans and we can meet our own needs. We've got it so well here. So I want you to go back in your mind to 2020. That's about the nearest thing we've got. Did you trust God then? Did you trust God through the scandemic? Did you? Did you? I know this, 25% of our church didn't. So do you really trust God? You see, it's easy to say it. We just had one little dose of a little test three years ago, and most of this nation failed. Christians. Well, I know I'm getting up in your living room. Everybody take a a chill. But were you living in fear or not? Did you trust or did you come up with your scheme? (laughs) I'll never forget a picture Ken sent me of a lady on the airplane. She came up with her own scheme, brother. She looked like a walking garbage bag, but anyway. You see, American Christians tend to talk big. But when push comes to shove, we demonstrate we're not standing on the promises as firmly as we thought we were. Now, I just want to encourage you today, don't ever leave the altar of prayer. Always remember, the one who died for you is the one who cares for you. And if He cared enough to save you, He cares enough to keep you, He cares enough to meet your needs. You don't have to come up with your own plan, schemes, lies, and all the rest. Just trust Him. Let's pray.